Coming up this hour, we have some headlines for you, and then we're joined by the one and only David French. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we are so glad you are with us today. Did you know you can find us all over the place? Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is that you prefer to listen to podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing helps us out a whole bunch. And we know plenty of you already have, and our proverbial hats are off to you, even though I don't think either of us are wearing hats. But uh, it is Monday. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what it is. I think that's what you say every Monday. It's Monday. It's Monday. It happens to be again. <laughs> I think you do that on Fridays, too. It's Friday. It's yeah. weekend is here. Um, I wanted to dive into some headlines the way we often uh, will start a show with not a lot of commentary necessarily, just some stories that I thought were either interesting or timely. Before we get into that, though, Brian, on a scale of uh, one to ten, how are you, you feeling right now? Oh, I'm good today. I, I'd give myself an eight. Yeah, it was a good weekend. And uh, other than a little bit of, you know, uh, what's happening in our world with COVID right now, I, I think I'm good. Uh, how about you? How are you doing today? <laughs> I like that you summarized our pandemic. <laughs> Other than a little of what's going on with COVID, I'm doing great. <laughs> That's really funny. I think what I meant more of is like, are things about to close down? What's about to happen? But yeah. yeah it's like being, in, being in the middle of a war and be like, hey, other than these bombs exploding all over my head. <laughs> Guilty. Good. Doing, Guilty. I think of the, uh, the Larry David, the pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I actually got in a Larry David uh, gif off with somebody on Twitter over the weekend. So that was exciting. <laughs> um, maybe I'll tell that story later. <laughs> uh, real quick. All right. So I got a couple of links in here and mm-hmm. I snuck in one negative one, but for the most part, we're starting off the Monday positive because it's Monday. Like you were saying, it's rough out there. Uh, so I'm going to let you choose which one of these you'd like to dive into first. Yeah. At the Christian post, it says this small Christian colleges set attendance records despite the pandemic. I was really surprised to read this. It said, uh, a couple different surveys, but one of them out of the Church of Christ, it says five out of the 10 Church of Christ affiliated universities have record enrollments this fall, yeah. uh, as do several other primarily undergraduate United States schools emphasizing on-campus instruction <laughs> while upholding biblical inerrancy. That is quite the mouthful right there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, also uh, reporting record enrollments were Dort College, Bethany Lutheran College, Milligan, Milligan University, uh, and another list, Colorado Christian University, Arizona Christian University. And I just found this interesting because you just figure uh, all colleges are going to be down right now because uh, people, why would you want to go remote or it just feels dangerous and risky or not worth your money right now? Uh, and they 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 give a couple different reasons. I, I, I don't really know whether they're right or not, maybe because these these schools are going in person and we're going to kind of keep doing the norm. Or maybe people just trust smaller Christian schools more right now than larger state schools. I don't know the reasoning, but I was surprised to read this article. And uh, it is worth saying, too, my seminary, Emmanuel, is linked to Milligan. And uh, oh. we had Lauren Gullett on a couple of weeks ago talking about the school. Right. If you have any, right. you know, I don't know, questions about the school, come on and uh, <laughs> hit us up on Facebook. I would be happy to provide some information. Coming up next, this one, I do need to preface it. Um, this is not a partisan position. This one's more about just, I mean, why not 2020? This is exactly. a story we've already recently <laughs> covered a little bit, but it has some puns kind of snuck in. So it's, uh, here's, here's the headline, from obscure to sold out. 
the story of four seasons total landscaping in just four days. I've seen so many people create their own T-shirts and bumper stickers, but here's how it starts. Uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping wants to make America rake again. (laughs) Just a day after the Philadelphia family business became the unlikely backdrop for a uh, belligerent Trump campaign press conference. I should admit, I guess this is from NPR. Its owners cashed in on the viral fame and even crossed party lines. On Sunday night, the company rolled out a line of T-shirts, hoodies, and stickers featuring the slogan, Lawn and Order. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. So on uh, Monday, it started offering face masks as well. By Tuesday, everything had sold out. Again, I, re- I really mean this. I'm not looking to weigh in on any kind of partisan perspectives here. I just thought, what a bizarre, yes. weird story that's perfect for this year. And I, I, don't, I don't know anything about, you know, the company or the family that owns it. But I, I saw this and I thought, eh, good for you guys. Like, well, you know, making, making the best of a weird situation. This is uh, one thing is it's capitalism at its finest, right? Sure, <laughs> right here. Sure. And it is. It's just like you said, so 2020 right now that you just whether you're a Republican, Democrat, whatever you thought of the press conference in front of them, it's just hilarious. And so yeah. it's good. The next one is uh, an interesting one uh, out of Redding, California, says Bethel Church pastor who prophesied Trump win posts apology video, then takes it down. So Bethel, one of their senior associate leaders by the name of uh, Chris Vallotton. Uh, He took to Instagram after the election with a really kind of an open apology. He said about his prophecy about Donald Trump winning, he said, I was wrong. I take full responsibility for being wrong. There's no excuse for it. I think it doesn't make me a false prophet, but it does actually create a credibility gap. And a lot of people trust me, trust my ministry. And I want to say I'm very sorry for everyone who put their trust in me, Valentin said on his Instagram account. Uh, And so uh, it goes on to tell that that Bethel, one of their senior leaders, Benny Johnson, who is married to their to the guy who started the whole thing, Bill Johnson, uh, came out almost in the opposite way and said, nope, we're still fighting. And then uh, uh, maybe related, maybe unrelated. A couple of days later, Chris Valentin took down his post and said, after doing a lot more research, I decided to wait until the official vote count is complete. And so. Uh, I, I read this and, and was just found it a little interesting because we did do a lot of stories of people like prophesying about President Trump and wondering what's going to happen if he loses. And uh, this is the first one I saw. And I also find it, uh, I don't know if surprising or just interesting that he's since taken it down. But I wonder if there'll be more people who are like, no, uh, I said, you know, I got a word from the Lord that President Trump was going to win if he indeed this kind of plays out that uh, Biden wins. Uh, and it gets, you know, it becomes more and more official and more and more concrete. Uh, if some if there'll be more apologies like this, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah. Time will tell, man. There probably is a, a whole segment in there somewhere about yep. prophecy and yep. religious leaders weighing in and then retracting and how all of that, especially with the sort of televangelist wave we seem to be in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So we're going to pull out of that to a couple more promising ones. This one from Relevant. Another COVID-19 vaccine is showing some very promising early potential. Uh, last week, the Pfizer uh, Pfizer announced that its COVID-19 vaccine was showing promising early signs of effectiveness. Now, Moderna has joined the chat. Data released by the pharmaceutical giant suggests that their vaccine is 94.5% effective against the Amazing. virus in early tests, making them the second U.S. company to achieve a remarkably high success rate. The rest of the article kind of goes on to explain all of that. But I mean, am I naive to be encouraged by that? Not at all, because again, uh, you and I are a few degrees short of our medical degree or a few credits short of our medical degree. Yeah. But case, case right, in point, yeah. when I turned on the Today Show today, right, they were interviewing Dr. Fauci and he was kind of 
uh, over, not overly, but like he was just super excited about this. And so yeah. when I see people in the profession whose livelihood is behind these kinds of things, uh, speaking about with this with excitement, I go, OK, when, when I hear Dr. Fauci saying uh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it might be closer than we think, I go, OK, I could use some good news because, you know, there's an article I was reading today about the long, dark winter that's coming and in. Yep. Uh, that's a bad thing. But to go, the, hey, there might be a light at the end of the tunnel because of these two vaccines that have turned out good. I, I'm I'm going uh, I'm going to be uh, excited about that. Yeah, agreed. All right. So we're almost out of time, Brent. But why don't you tell us briefly about this last one? Yeah. Denison Forum. We've uh, Jim Denison on now a couple of times. Uh, he posts an article that we talked about the other day from the Good News Network. Uh, he wrote an article about it. I'm your dad forever. Single dad who adopted five siblings says what we all need to hear. That whole saying of I'm your dad forever. And how it must have, his name's Robert Carter, how it had to have just changed the lives of these five siblings who would no longer be separated. I I love what Jim did with this because he not only said, isn't this a good news, isn't this a cool story, but said, that's just a line that we all need to hear. I'm your dad forever. Good work here from Jim Dennison. Yeah, highly recommend you go and read it. I know that I mentioned it 12 times a show, but it is on our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Dennison is just brilliant. Check out his whole blog, but this one in particular just kind of... uh, Hit all the feels, Brian, and uh, I can't recommend enough. Have a tissue ready. Just there yes. was, but it, it is a remarkable story, and he does a great job with it. Coming up next, man, oh, man, am I pumped. Attorney, political commentator, and author David French is going to be with us here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I won't bore you with all the details. You can just Google us if you like. Any interaction is good interaction, and we're grateful for that. And I got to be honest, I am thrilled, beside myself almost, (laughs) to have for the rest of the hour, attorney, political commentator, and author David French. Welcome to the show, sir. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. I, I already told you off air that we we owe you some money because a lot of our segments <laughs> tend to be real <laughs> David French heavy. But for those who are maybe new to the show, would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, um, I'm a senior editor at the new uh, media startup called The Dispatch, a new media startup, uh, thedispatch.com. I'm a columnist for Time Magazine. Uh, I'm a veteran. I'm formerly at National Review. So that's kind of the political side of my life. Um, more importantly, I'm a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I've got uh, a great, wonderful wife named Nancy and three awesome kids. And we live in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, mm-hmm. So I am in the middle of, uh, unlike a lot of folks who are in the media, I'm smack dab in the middle of Red America. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's that's where I grew up. That's where I was born, raised, grew that's up. Great. As I like to say, come by my Southeastern Conference football fanaticism, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I was born in Alabama, lived in Louisiana, Tennessee, and Kentucky. So there you go. Oh, gosh. Wow. Uh, So, David, obviously, we read, as Ian said, a lot of your stuff are centered specifically around politics, and we tend to resonate a lot with it. Now, I just wanted to ask you, when we knew you were coming on, if, if uh, if we could go in a time machine back in October, uh, let's say we're back in October, I should say, we, we came up to now, would you be surprised by what's happening right now? We're a week or two out from the election. Would you be surprised by what's currently going on? And then I'd ask you after that, how do you think this all ends when it finally all ends? Yeah, so I will say I was surprised and I shouldn't have been. <laughs> um, so so here's what happened. Um, 
So I've, I've been writing a ton about how deep-seated American polarization is, that mm-hmm. we, we are not in an atmosphere where people even try to persuade each other very much anymore, as opposed to sort of mobilize against the opposition, how we're very, very closely divided, how those divisions are rooted very deeply emotionally, uh, they're rooted very deeply politically, and 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 then I sort of looked at these, you know, five thirty-eight polling averages, and I looked at the Real Clear Politics polling averages, and I went, oh, maybe this is going to be a landslide. <laughs> and I should have known. Of course, it's not going to be a landslide because yeah. what I know about the deeper facts of American life and the deeper divisions that that sort of, at least for the time being, that sort of landslide reality is kind of off the table. And so I was surprised by the closeness of the election, which was on me. That was dumb because I knew better. I, I wrote a book about how deep-seated American polarization is. So it's like you've heard physician heal thyself or read thyself. There you and, go. And so that, that should – it did surprise me. It shouldn't surprise me. But once, we, once the election was over and the closeness of the outcome was apparent, Nothing has surprised me since. Nothing. Mm. No, not not the prevalence of the fl- of the fraud allegations and mm. and not the president's behavior. Um, nothing. Nothing has surprised me. You wrote an article back in July that I've I, I don't think I've sent an article to more people than this one. And the headline is America is in the grips of a fundamentalist revival, but it's not Christian. And there. There's there's too many good nuggets in it for me just to kind of pull them out now, but I, I would love for you to take a minute or two. Like, what do you what do you mean by that? And and what would you is there anything you'd change about it now in November from when you wrote it back in July? Yeah, th- this is uh, you know this is something that was based on. Uh, I kind of had this sudden realization as I was beginning to see a, uh, the rise of a, a lot of the um, particularly intolerant um, attitudes on the illiberal left. And and what I as I was looking at this, I was saying, oh, I I understand this. And this is sort of long how I've uh, processed through a lot of illiberal movements on the right and the left in the U.S. It's like, oh, and I I tweeted, you know, it's I don't think you can really fully understand what's going on on the more radical quarters on the right or more radical quarters on the left unless you've had either experience or knowledge of fundamentalism. Mm -hmm of religious fundamentalism. And, and I know there's like all kinds of, of definitions and theological explorations, of what fundamentalism is, but the way I kind of described it in the context of my own experience is that fundamentalism is a worldview that lacks any existential uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a worldview that lacks any real sense of meaningful doubt. And then when your worldview lacks any sense of meaningful doubt you often fail to understand disagreement you also fa- you often ascribe the worst possible motives to disagreement mm-hmm. and you fail to see any value at all in dissenting ideas or dissenting speech in fact it, they're 100% threatening mm-hmm. because what they are they could potentially do is persuade people away from the worldview you have that you are certain is correct in all of its particulars and if that sounds sort of like a, a an extreme or an uncharitable reading of sort of the way the extremes of our politics have uh, are approaching the world, I think if you if you see how the extremes of our politics are manifesting themselves, if there's one thing they lack, it's the slightest bit of sort of doubt about 
the the not just the truth of their beliefs but the virtue of their beliefs and mm -hmm. and i talked about how you know you can be a small low orthodox christian or you can be a um you know uh pronoun use proper pro, you know pronoun using secular progressive that's as as liberal as liberal can be but when you have that bit of existential uncertainty when you have that sense of doubt that in this complex world with so many moving parts that I think I know what's right, but I could be wrong <laughs> with when you have that, it tempers your engagement almost right. by necessity because it it creates a sense of openness. When you don't have that, it puts a much harder edge on your engagement. Mm -hmm. And so that that's why I, I brought it up like that is that I feel like that what we have is sort of a fundamentalist awakening both on the illiberal left and the MAGA right. And on mm -hmm. the MAGA right, it's it's kind of syncretistic. It's it's connected and intertwined with Christianity, but it is not it is not a fundamentalist Christianity. It's a fundamentalism located in politics. Hmm. About a month or so ago, I listened to you on the Ezra Klein podcast. I'd encourage people to go out there and listen to that particular episode. You were talking, you and Ezra were talking about polarization. Uh, and, and some of the ways you see it the same and see it differently. Uh, could you help our audience and myself understand better why are we so much more polarized or are we more polarized now than we used to be? And if we are, if I'm right, then what what has kind of happened that we are this much more polarized now than we've ever been before? Yeah. So, you know, it, whenever you're talking about we're, more, we're worse than we were on anything, there's going to be somebody who's going to raise their hand and say, oh, well, actually, <laughs> we you know, there's this moment in history and this moment in history. So I try to be careful and I want to say we're more polarized than we've been in modern times. You know, obviously, 1860, 1861, we were more polarized. Uh, election of 1876, more polarized. I mean, you can go down the line to other parts of American history where you can say we're more polarized. Hmm. But what we are is more polarized than we've been in modern times. And it's a particular kind of polarization. It's called negative partisanship or negative polarization. And and what that means is we tend to be on our tribe, in our tribe, not because we love our tribe's ideas, but because we fear or despise the other tribe. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a Republican, you're a Republican, not so much because there's this list of platform ideas that you love, but because you really don't like the Democrats. And your candidate, no matter whatever that candidate's flaws, they have one overriding virtue, and that's they're not the other guy. Mm -hmm. And and so what we are, have is a situation where this this negative partisanship is brought about by huge tidal forces in our culture. So it's not like you can just sit there and say, well, if we had a better media, this would be different. Or, right. you know, if if only the liberal media more respected people of faith more, if only people of faith spent more time in liberal media, you know, whatever, whatever your little your idea of what's wrong with media or what's wrong with politics is sort of a drop in the ocean of what's going on culturally. and. What I try to do in, in my book is I, I try to show how these multiple factors, whether it's geographic separation called the big sort after a 2009 book by Bill Bishop, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which means that we're clustering in communities of like mind. And that leads to something called group polarization, where when like-minded people gather, they get more extreme. Mm. That leads to an inability to communicate with each other. It means that we often don't even spend time on the same kinds of media. Right. So whether it's polit by politics, we're clustering together, by religion, we're clustering together, by the, the entertainment we watch, we're clustering together. I, I talk about how um, 
if you look at TV watching maps, the shows, the popular shows often divide, their viewers divide by the same kinds of partisan maps you see on election night. So, you know, a popular show, one of the most popular shows in the U.S. was Game of Thrones. But if you looked at the Game of Thrones viewer map, it was the Hillary Clinton 2016 map. Uh-huh. If you if you're looking at an, an, a different competing very bloody show, it was Walking Dead, you know, this sort of love letter to the Second Amendment. And it it <laughs> is the red voting map. And so all of these things are happening at once. They're such tidal forces. They're so huge that when we kind of look at how we're going to solve it, like where things like a better media or a unifying politician, they feel like weak forces against the stronger forces. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things that I, I've been fascinated by, and, and again, Brian and I are, are pastors, so we often kind of get caught in the middle. Sometimes people's feedback is like, you're a pastor. Why are you bothering to talk about things like justice or politics? You should just speak on spiritual right. things. You know, that's often kind of the mm-hmm. criticism. But I feel like I, there's two sides of my newsfeed right now. One side is saying, can't, can't we just be kind to one another? Like I think of Samuel <laughs> Johnson, right? Like kindness is possible even when fondness is not. And then the other side yes. is saying, no, there's, this is no time for decency or kindness or, or dare I say unity. You actually wrote an article about a year ago, a year and a half ago, decency is no barrier to justice or the common good. Right. I don't just like that title for obvious reasons, but like, <laughs> what, I, I'd be curious to know, what do you mean by that? And, and how is that possible? How, how can we maybe return to a sense of civility or decency in the name of unity, even amidst our differences? Well, you know, it, uh, that's a really good question. And if you figure it out, I'd love to. <laughs> uh, you know, look, I mean, part of it is, so a lot of my writing is aimed at a Christian audience. And so I'm right. I'm writing with people who, uh, not all of it, but a lot of it, especially I have a Sunday newsletter that is um, much more, I'd say, disproportionately read by a religious audience. And so, when it comes to concepts like decency or kindness or civility, one of the things I argue is that, look, these when it comes to a, a person's uh, Christian walk, their walk of faith, these virtues are not tactics. They're commands. Mm-hmm. That the, the, it's not sort of the biblical mandate is not to love your enemies unless you're going to lose an election <laughs> or bless those who are going to persecute you unless they're the libs and they're in an Ivy League university. You know, right, it's not right. it's not conditional. It's an it, these are command commandments. And so your political activism, your commitment to justice doesn't waver, but the means of pursuing justice have to be tempered by these moral values. Hmm. Um and and so, you know, I think often of Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? It is to act justly. There's that pursuit of justice, but also to love kindness or love mercy, depending on the translation, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. So there you both have both sort of means and ends wrapped up in interlocking obligations. The mm. end is justice. The means, you're achieving justice in part through mercy and humility. And so... When you speak of that into a, a religious audience, what you're really trying to do is sort of appeal to deep moral values that they often in, integrate into their personal lives, into their family lives, even to their business lives, but have left on the sidewalk when it comes to politics. Hmm. Now, when you're talking into secular, much more secular audiences who aren't aren't tracking biblical, man, biblical commands, well, you know, I think that's when you're sort of saying, 
you're you're kind of applying a misery principle here mm. that um what we are doing is immiserating us as a people it's harming us it's mm. hurting us and that the reality is this quest to dominate your op opposition this quest mm. to sort of drive them from the land and to salt the earth so that they cannot rise again is a, it's futile it's mm. futile that in the United States of America, there's going to be persistent, deep disagreement. Pluralism is a fact of life. And we either can adopt our polity, our politics, to, uh, to the pluralism that's going to exist, or we can fight against the existence of that pluralism mm. and either fracture our nation or certainly, in the most extreme version of it, or certainly immiserate our nation in in and make our politics toxic and so there are really just sort of different approaches to the same mm -hmm. problem depending depending on the the audience yeah last week we we talked about your post uh it was entitled may god bless president biden and then in the article you talk about how in 2016 you wrote a similar one may god bless president trump <laughs> and uh, that seems a bit of a base level deal right to pray the god's yeah. blessing for our presidents my guess is it didn't go over very well in some circles Ooh. and and <laughs> I would love to know. I would love to know the response, right, to what you did here, and how discouraging is that to you as a believer, as a Christian, to get pushed back to something that most of us pastors would say is pretty base level. Pray God's blessing for our president or our president elect. Yeah, um, I was actually. I knew it would be bad. I didn't know it would be as bad. And, wow. And I'm I'm used to blowback. I mean, I'm used to really negative. Um, especially in the age of Trump, I'm used to very, very, very um, toxic responses mm. and sometimes filtering into the offline and into the real world. And, and uh, but I, I, I can think of all of the things I've written for the dispatch since I've come to the dispatch. That was by far the m most poorly received as far really? as no in in the context of 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 direct immediate angry personal correspondence without wow. question wow and it it surprise it does not surprise me but it doesn't it doesn't mean it's not very disappointing that that's mm -hmm. the case um because the what what i was talking about is if we have an imperative a command of praying for our leaders which we do mm -hmm. what does that really mean it doesn't mean support them in all of the particulars of their policy. It doesn't mean that. It's not incompatible. Praying for your leaders is not incompatible with that command to seek or act justly. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, part of and I even had a, a you know, a sort of here's how I pray, pray for leaders is mm. praying that their just initiatives, their virtuous initiatives would prosper and their unjust initiatives would fail. Um, so you're not praying in all particulars. But, you know, you are you are seeking. You know, you, you are seeking that God's will will prevail and you are seeking that justice will prevail and, you know, um, you know, the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. And yet the idea that you would have any good wishes or goodwill towards Joe Biden at all, that was the part that was offensive to people. Wow. That he's a horrible human being. And how dare you express sort of any sort of desire that God would bless him? How dare you? Wow. And that, that was the reaction. It was very strong. 
It was I, very, not everybody. There were a lot of people who said, you know, thank you for this. Okay, this is this helps put in context what I'm, you know, what I should do. Hmm. But this it sort of shows the sheer anger when hmm. when Donald Trump won in 2016. I had opposed Donald Trump, but I wanted those. I wanted his heart to turn towards God. I wanted his plans that were virtuous and just to prevail. I wanted his plans that were unjust to fail. Very similar kind of, a very similar construct. I almost identical construct is were my desires. But a Trump supporter would read something that said, "I want to pray for President Trump," and say, mm -hmm. "Yay!" And I got blowback from the other side. You know, this guy's mm -hmm. a monster. He's horrible. Mm -hmm. And so there's just that that personal animus towards the politician is so strong that the idea that they could do anything that they could that should either could or should succeed hmm. is an anathema to some people right and and that you know that's very disappointing and i think it's outright dangerous to see it spread mm -hmm. well david just to say it out loud to what i mentioned already brian and i are incredibly appreciative for your voice your perspective it, it is honestly a lot of the heartbeat behind our show and we often catch blowback from both sides and that's sure we get that that's kind of the nature of, of the platform but in, in september you actually debated uh, Eric Metaxas, and the question was, should Christians vote for Trump? And you you distilled your opening argument to a phrase that I, I just have not been able to get out of my head, and it's character is destiny. Could you unpack that a little more for people who maybe aren't familiar with it or haven't, haven't seen it? What do you mean by character is destiny? Yeah, you know, and I— I use that phrase, and it's one that I think the first time I saw that particular phrase was actually from my colleague Jonah Goldberg, and mm -hmm. and um, so what I what the phrase is designed to do is to accurately rebut this notion that we saw in the uh, during the Clinton era, for example, when the Monica Lewinsky scandal was in full cry, right. and what we saw also seen in the Trump era, and that is this idea that there is this bright line between character and and policies mm -hmm. that you can have a horrible person, a terrible human being, but so long as they sort of check the box on various policies, they're going to, you know, lower the tax rate or they're going to increase the defense budget. That that the policies can sort of be a firewall against character. Well, that's something that if I would to say that to you about say your boss at work, it would feel weird. <laughs> because uh, if your boss is continually lying, your boss is acting unstable, if he's losing his uh, his temper, the fact that he's also approved a pretty nice product rollout does not mean that everything's okay. <laughs> and that, in fact, it can create the character can create a crisis all on its own. And and what I was saying is that because there is not a bright line between character and policy and character, in fact, can shape policy. Uh, to a great deal, that this idea that you just don't want to talk about Trump's character and we shouldn't talk about it was a false construct. And so, I, you know, one of the best examples of that was Trump's decision, once he learned about the severity of coronavirus and COVID-19, to lie to the American people about its severity and prevalence and to to distort and to, and to essentially... Uh, mock in in many contexts, wearing masks, for example, that was where his bad character, his desire to sort of um, make people believe things are better than they are, to try to work on the stock market, to um, 
be seen as some sort of strong individual and who mm. is, despises weakness had ripple effects throughout our nation and our culture that have actually cost lives. You know, this this diminish uh, this this attitude that diminishes the severity of the coronavirus or mocks mask wearing. These things are actually dangerous to people's lives, much less also dangerous to the prosperity of our nation because our economy is never going to fully recover until we get the coronavirus under control. And right. so. This was a direct example of where character influenced the a way we live. Another good example of that is the inflammatory way in which he responded after the George Floyd killing and you know the way in which his police attacked peaceful protesters to clear the way for him to wave a Bible in front of a church where incidentally the actual clergy of the church were chased off away from their own church for this photo op. Right. And and these things have an effect that you just can't wave away by saying, oh, they're just mean tweets, or oh, he's a little rude. No, these things have an actual effect on the United States of America. Hmm. Uh, David, do you, are you hopeful that we can uh, uh, turn this around as a nation, that we'll be less polarized in the future? And then on top of that, ask this, what is the opportunity you see for the church going forward? Uh, what is the opportunity uh, for the church to help bring healing into our nation? Yeah, you know, as far as hopeful, um, hope is a strong word. I, <laughs> I would say, in the short to medium term, there are not there aren't very strong forces that are pushing back against the the negative polarization that I described. I mean, there 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 is some there's some seeds of hope. There are a lot of people who are beginning to wake up that this is a problem and we need to do something about it. So there's seeds of hope, but I think. Right now, the forces sort of driving us apart are really, really strong, but that doesn't mean they're going to last forever, and that doesn't mean that that they're irresistible. That these forces are irresistible. Um, you know, there there is a a point at which Americans may get miserable enough to where they they reverse course rather decisively, and there's examples of that in American history uh, of where the American people kind of moved not as not in unanimity, but as a group, hmm. and um, it is. It is a um, so there's always hope. It's just if you're looking at sort of all of the the realities of our culture and politics, it doesn't look good in the near term. <laughs> um, but, you know, the other the, I would say what's interesting, though, is there was this interesting dynamic that's come out of 2020 that's kind of been lost in the that's been really lost in all of the. Um, in all of the furious argument about the legitimacy of the election. And this, right. what's really interesting about 2020 is you had massive mobilization by both sides, massive to an extent that we've not seen in American history. And neither side triumphed, but each side won an important victory. Hmm. And so, you know, the, obviously Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, but there was no blue wave. What it sort of did was show that even if everyone is at maximum effort of mobilization, the difficulty of sweep it is intensely difficult to sweep the field of your opponents. It's <laughs> very difficult. And the sooner we recognize that reality, that there's no way to mobilize our team to dominate and destroy the opposition, at least anytime soon, right. the quicker we're going to realize that maybe we should stop trying to, for example, destroy our opponents 
and start trying to, instead of choosing to dominate, start trying to as much as possible accommodate, start trying mm. to turn the temperature down mm. on politics. Because you just had maximum effort of both sides. And it reminded me of like, and I use this analogy in Time magazine, of trench warfare, political version of trench warfare, where you know the two sides would pour maximum effort and like move the lines a couple of kilometers, <laughs> but not change the underlying strategic reality. Right. It's like after this election, both sides exerted maximum effort and made you know meaningful, but not truly enduring changes in these underlying realities. And so, don't we kind of need to figure out another <laughs> way through this misery? Other than just pouring maximum effort into to into often personal and political destruction. Yeah. Gosh, that's a good word. I, I said it before, but we're so grateful for how generous you've been with your time and your writing and your perspective. You, you've been a blessing to both Brian and I and I know our audience. I would love for people to know briefly, wh where can they go to learn more? Can you hit us with whatever social media or websites or books sure. or any of that? Because I'm, I'm sure that you've uh, you've wet their appetite. <laughs> well, so I, I have a new book called Divided We Fall. You can find it where books are sold, Amazon, et cetera. Um, but you can follow me on the dispatch.com. And I, the thing that I write, sort of the gateway drug, <laughs> is um, my Sunday newsletter. You can sign up for that for free. Uh, and every Sunday at 6.30 a.m. Eastern, you'll get a, a newsletter a Sunday. It's called The newsletter is called The French Press. Love it. And uh, I talk about faith and politics and culture a ton in that Sunday newsletter. And if you really like what you read, you can become a member of the dispatch for not just a nominal, meaningless amount of money. <laughs> and um, I, I write three times a week there. We have multiple podcasts. So um, believe me, if if. You you can get your cup full of content from me, <laughs> <Absolutely. Overflowing. laughs> not only not only is the French press fantastic, it's also a frustratingly brilliantly good pun. And uh, <laughs> it was the first time I saw it, like upset that I couldn't actually uh, think of that myself. And all credit goes to my wife. She came up with it. So. Oh, man. Well, our guest today has been attorney, political commentator and author David French. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's our yep. pleasure. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving, and then it's the Hour of the Joes. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You probably know at this point, you can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post every article we talk about, sometimes articles we haven't talked about. You can weigh in there. You can shoot us a private message if you like, whether that's feedback on a previous show or thoughts about a future show or a guest you think would be great or a topic or an angle, an article, any of that. A tweet could be a snap. I wouldn't know how to watch it if you send me a Snapchat nope. or a TikTok. I wouldn't even be able to. I could figure it out. Anyway, that's a great place to interact if you'd like to. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, it's, you know, it's the holiday season. If you feel like giving, if you feel like being generous, subscribing, rating, reviewing is the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. A topic, Brian, that it feels like 
everyone and their mom is talking about right now is mm-hmm. what's Thanksgiving going to look like? What's Christmas right. going to look like? I don't know if you guys are having that conversation within your extended families or if you're mm-hmm. trying to navigate that, if you've already made your decisions, where, where are you guys like in that process? I literally had it with my parents last night and I would say we're still trying yeah. to figure it out because uh, my brother and his family who are also local, they, they have a very big family and uh, yeah, man, it's like, you're like, okay, how do we do this? And and I don't think we're all going to be together. In fact, I'm pretty positive, pretty confident of that. But it's just a hard because it's just such a sad conversation. Like Thanksgiving's meant to be with your whole family. Christmas right. is meant to be with your whole family. And everybody you talk to, it's not really playing out that way or they're having these hard conversations. So, you know, it's it's out there. But when you actually have the conversation, you're like, man, this stinks. Like I like I want to be with my family on Thanksgiving. You know, I right. want to be with my family on Christmas. And and so it's just yet another reminder uh, that things aren't normal, that things are difficult all around us. How about you guys? I know you've got big family that you guys probably gather together. Is that been a hard conversation so far as well? I, I mean, I just realized Thanksgiving was happening this month. I had, I had, uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. that's how on the ball I am. No, you know, we have a, a group chat and a, and a Facebook thing and it's tough because a lot of us have like real little kids. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're trying to it's difficult, you know, because there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in that. So sometimes, yeah. you know, if someone feels like a a serious conviction about one thing, it's difficult sometimes to not feel or take things more personally than they were intended. I mean, I'm I know I'm not saying anything new. I'm sure that's how everyone feels and trying to navigate this. No one's like, "Screw you, family. I'm not right. I'm, I'm thankful for COVID, so I don't have to see you." Like I don't think that's <laughs> how most people are feeling, but I think yeah, yeah everyone's trying to kind of navigate this and it's it's emotional. It's also, you know, public safety issue. And mm-hmm. I saw this at Christian News, actually, which is not a, a, a Chicago resource. And it says Chicago's mayor wants people to cancel Thanksgiving and stop having people over, including family. I don't know if you saw this. Um, and, I mean, it was it's they're linking to a BuzzFeed article, but it's it's the kind of thing that I I hear in Chicagoland. I've seen a lot of different opinions about some of these parameters and some of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're more than requests. They're more than suggestions that somewhere in this like squishy middle that I think people are trying to like, okay, if I have one conviction, but I feel like the law of the land is looking different, at least where I'm at. Either way, I know a lot of people are trying to navigate this and I found this other resource that I thought was actually pretty helpful. It says Thanksgiving goes virtual, how to carve out new traditions amid the ongoing pandemic. So just as a, as a human, I was watching all these conversations happen online and I thought, man, I wonder if there's, if anyone's put together something that could be potentially useful for helping us kind of navigate this. And I thought this was, was kind of helpful. So you want to, you want to get us into it? Yep. At the Washington Post says with three weeks left before Thanksgiving, many pandemic weary Americans are still struggling with the details of how to be together with the coronavirus surging family and friends. Like we, you and I've been saying are talking and texting about virus risk factors, which are real and complicated. Health experts are urging people to stay home. A virtual Thanksgiving or friends giving gathering won't smell or taste delicious, but increasingly, People are realizing it's the safer option. Reginald and Tara Page, who have eight children, are planning a smaller family gathering this year on their patio and on Zoom. Uh, Tara, who in April founded the 200,000-person strong Facebook group, Black Women Who Love Outdoor Living Spaces, is checking out grilled turkey recipes. Uh, So she's saying we want to see our children, but in the pandemic, we have to think about each other. It's different and it's harder. The current official guidance from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention says a lower risk Thanksgiving involves a small gathering with only those who live in your household. Other family and friends could be looped in virtually. 
The guidelines suggest having a virtual dinner and sharing recipes with family and friends. But what about the regulars who look forward to the bourbon pumpkin pie year <laughs> after year? It says planning might be the ticket. If Zoom or other platforms will be the way you go, create a strategy to make it work smoothly and keep it fun. If your family likes to dress up for the holidays, get out your party dresses. If you like games, have a scavenger hunt or a trivia contest. If there's a naturally bossy family member who's also a planner, get that person to organize an agenda and send out invitations. Ask tech-savvy family members to design a festive custom Zoom background. Cranberries and hand sanitizer, it says. <laughs> and help those who may not be adept to Zoom at Zoom to sign on. So again, uh, nobody is saying that a Zoom Thanksgiving is at all preferable. Right. Like it's just it's hard. It's really hard. But I do think these are some good, easy suggestions that say, hey, if it has to be done that way, how can we maximize its benefit? And, and I think that's what this article is getting at. And, uh, you know, we could spend a lot of the holidays over here uh, just bemoaning and being sad about what we're missing. And I think what they're urging is, OK, take that time to grieve that. But now what can we do? To make this as good as it can be, maybe even start some new traditions. What could that look like in this strange time? And, and you had mentioned that you guys have already at least celebrated uh, with your, your parents, right? Is this? No, not yet. Yeah. Oh, you haven't yet. Okay. What, no, no, I was just talking to them about what's Thanksgiving going to look like. But I got you. I was going to say that is, yeah, that is ahead of the curve there, Brian. Would <laughs> any uh, any suggestions out of that conversation that were particularly helpful? No, my family situation is just a bit different because my parents live next door to me. So we've been right. seeing them this whole time. Right. And right, right. so it's more about what's the rest of our family look like. But, you know, uh, it was interesting. My parents were telling me that they're, you know, their small group at the church. Every basically everyone in that small group was like, yeah, no, we're not seeing anybody. Yeah, we're mm. not with anybody. And so I do think uh, it's let's put it this way. This is better than just sitting at home, uh, eating turkey by yourself, watching football, just being sad about who you're not with. Right. Like, are right. there things you can do the same way our kids had to do this back in the spring? Right. You can't see your friends, but what are you going to do? I, I think being creative like this is making the best of a bad situation. Well, and what I do appreciate, I mean, the article is much longer, too. It has some other suggestions that I, I never would have even thought about. It's got links to like, you know, free or more affordable ways to learn about your ancestry. It's talking about what if you planted mm -hmm. like a series of different Zoom conversations and each family member took like a different branch of the family tree to kind of unpack and talk about i don't know there's some ideas here where i thought again to your point brian like obviously none of it's going to replace to any degree you know but like i've seen people start like facebook threads already like sharing their favorite family recipes and people kind of swapping ideas back back and forth which mm -hmm. you know seems to be like bringing people together at least in some digital sense which i i appreciate like i i don't there seems to be you're right that certainly a number of people that are, are rightly discouraged and bummed out mm -hmm. by the whole thing but I feel like I see even more people that are like, all right, we we are going to be proactive about still That's making right. this the best we possibly can. And I thought, man, in a in a year where there just seems to be a lot of heartache and a lot of grief and a lot of sorrow, I was just really I was grateful for how many people I saw kind of stepping up to the plate and be like, all right, let's let's make the most of this. And so, I'm, you know, I found this article. And I know there's probably a billion others like it. Mm -hmm. There are suggestions out there. Even if you don't like this one, go and find something, make the most of it. Maybe we'll even post a question on our Facebook page, like, how are you handling Thanksgiving? We would love for that to be a place where people can, you know, share your own thoughts and your own strategies and your own brainstorms. I think all of that would be just lovely. Mm -hmm. Coming up next, uh, author Joe Carter is going to join us talking about an article that he wrote for the Gospel Coalition. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. Someone has a case of the Mondays, and it's me. That's not totally true. It's it just been like kind of frumpy today. Is that yeah. is that is that the weather? Is that the Monday-ishness? It actually, we, we've talked about this before. I don't know why this is. So like we, we pre-recorded our messages now on Monday mornings. So I pre-recorded, you know, last week, this Monday, but on Sunday we had our services and I, it was me teaching and I still felt sort of the, what, what did you call it? The holy hangover yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. It's still kind of there, obviously not to the same degree, but <laughs> listening to yourself multiple times is exhausting. It's a yeah. real, it's a real trip. I wonder if the hangover comes from the it is the actual presenting of it. But I think also as part of it is like putting yourself out there like, OK, mm. how, and, and you still have to put up with that. Uh, you know, you still have to deal with that, even if it's already pre-recorded. On that's the a good point. Sunday. So I think that's part of it, too. The mental of like uh, and especially when you're watching it, it's probably harder. Like, what are people thinking right now? Because you're not. Talking right. At the moment, so. Oh, that's a good point. Well, and not yeah. to mention it, it was a, a passage that was like particularly convicting to write and then teach and then listen to six times. It was mm-hmm. brutal. Like it was for every Enneagram three, this is the text, Matthew <laughs> six, where Jesus is talking about uh, giving prayer and fasting and not doing it for the praise of, of humans, oh, you know, gosh, but yeah. for the praise of God, like at, oof, I, don't, I don't need to make this a therapy session right here, but um, yeah. you want to know what the holidays are? I do. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. It's National Indiana Day, so... It's always a state. I think that's so weird. Isn't that odd? Yeah. I mean, it can't always be because there's more days than <laughs> then states. they just rotate uh, through them again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everyone, everyone gets multiples. It's National Button Day. I know you're a big fan of buttons. Uh, huge. Huge. <laughs> it's International Day for Tolerance, which I find infuriating. Um, <laughs> Freaking internationals. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the one that's probably being celebrated the most is the Fast Food Day. It is Fast Food Day. So That would explain the Twitter thing I saw going around as to which – each state's favorite fast food restaurant. That would explain it. Oh, what is ours? Do you remember? So I do. I did see it, and I feel like I I quibble with it a little bit. It's a place I love, but in the map, Illinois was Portillo's. I don't think of Portillo's as fast food. Um, Why? Why not? It just feels different to me. Like when I think I get it, you go to a counter, you get it. But when I think fast food, I'm thinking like McDonald's, Culver's, Wendy's, and then like the next level up is like, Portillo's or Bona Beef or Chipotle, but hey, I love Portillo's. So if Big we're going to classify it as as uh, fast food, I think they got it right for sure. It's also mind boggling to me that I cannot think of a day or time that I've driven past a Portillo's and there's not been a drive through line like around the building. Yes. How is that? How is that possible? It's amazing. And now, obviously, the restaurants are closed down. But even when everything's normal, people will wait. It looks like it's got to be 40 minutes long. And you're like, okay. It's unbelievable. It really is. And they move them along quickly. Okay, that's not actually what this segment. I feel like I'm stalling because this segment is actually sort of heavy. Uh, So I guess I guess I I need to kind of get into it. So this was uh, was almost a week ago. Uh, Megan Briggs from churchleaders.com. One in five COVID patients goes on to develop mental illness. This this to me is part of what a lot of people have been trying to draw attention to. Like, hey, surviving COVID is not the only aim. You know, like when people say like, well, they, they didn't die. So that's good, which I would agree. That is good. Um, and where a lot of people have been going are like the long-term, you know, physical respiratory mm-hmm. effects. Mm-hmm. I have not read a lot of people writing specifically about 
the the mental toll that it takes. So I would love for for you to get us into this and uh, and then we'll respond. Yep. It says, as as you said, Megan wrote one in five people who contract COVID-19 are diagnosed with mental illness within the three months following their positive test result. Among the mental illnesses being diagnosed are anxiety, depression, insomnia, and dementia. People have been worried that COVID-19 survivors will be at a greater risk of mental health problems, and our findings show this to be likely, Paul Harrison, Mm. a professor of psychiatry at Oxford, told Reuters. Harrison also noted that the results garnered in the study, quote, are likely to be underestimates, implying that the likelihood of a person suffering a mental illness after undergoing a battle with COVID-19 maybe even higher than the study projects. The study analyzed the health records of 69 million people in the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, including the records of 62,000 who had been diagnosed with COVID-19 between January 20th of 2020 and August 1st. Uh, And so it goes on to say, not only did the study find that 20% of people diagnosed with COVID-19 went on to be diagnosed with a mental illness for the first time in their lives, The results also suggest that those who had been diagnosed with mental illnesses in the three years prior to the study time period, uh, prior to the study time period, contracted COVID-19 at higher rates than Mm. those who had not been diagnosed with mental illnesses. Specifically, the study authors say the results show, quote, odds of being diagnosed with COVID-19 were higher for patients with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, bipolar disorder, depression, and schizophrenia. Mm. So it's going to keep going and we can get into more of this, but. Uh, Again, this gets to the complexity that COVID-19 is, and you touched on it, whether it be long-term health effects that we don't know about, but this long-term, even only three months after diagnosis of mental illness, I got to be honest, this is nothing I would have ever predicted or thought about. If you ask me, what are the the, kind of underlying things we should be worried about with COVID-19, I wouldn't have said mental illness due to COVID-19 is something that we need to have on our radar, but we clearly do. Well, it goes on to say that uh, Harrison says health services need to prepare for the ongoing care COVID-19 patients will likely require. He also encouraged doctors and scientists to investigate the causes of the rise in mental illness and potential treatments. So there's the really probably obvious need when people, and we see this a lot on, on Twitter, our news feeds about available hospital beds for, for treatment for COVID-19 specifically. And I think probably, and again, you and I aren't, therapists or counselors, I'm sure that entire community has been way ahead of the curve on this. But part of what the article is saying is we need to prepare probably for like a tidal wave of need that we have not anticipated. I mean, 20% is massive. If if it's spreading like we think it is, to take 20% of a number that big and you juxtapose that, it gets gets further complicated because it's, it's much harder to test for depression or anxiety you can't just like stick a swab up a nose you know what i mean like that's that's what makes the whole thing extra tricky so when you talk about that coupled with you know job loss and quarantining and divided political landscape there's a lot of factors contributing i think to to what people are experiencing i just i did not expect the findings to be this specific or this large to be totally honest yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see going forward uh, how much of this is literally the disease, like COVID-19, right. messing with your brain and stuff, and how much of it is the isolation or people with COVID-19 not being able to be cared for by, like, their loved ones, and, and what does all that play in? Uh, I think it just, you know, we sound like a broken record each and every day that we talk about this, but, man, COVID-19, I think the complexities are so much more intricate and greater than you hear a lot of people talk about it. Ah, you just get it, and then most likely you get over it and everything's fine. Well. 
even if you don't end up in the hospital and even if you don't get real sick, it seems to be pointing to the fact that there's a lot of unknowns that we don't know the long term, uh, even the short term to long term issues psychologically, physically. Uh, and these are things we're just going to have to deal with. And, and I think that we undersell them right now. Right now, it's just about you have it. You got to get over it. And, and I understand why. But but, man, I I you just wonder what it's going to be like here in the, in the near future and longer term down the road. Yeah. And I wonder if part of it is, you know, getting a, a disease like this makes you ponder your own mortality in a way that's more intense than you're used to. Like, I wonder if that's part of it, like coming face to face with something that intense. I, I wonder if some of those, again, I don't, I don't know. And it sounds like the, you know, the, uh, the authors of this article don't necessarily know either, especially why. So I think you're right. It is sort of a, it's a perfect storm right now, but either way, like I read that and thought, okay, at the very least, if I was to think of like a takeaway, like we need to be kind to one another. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's so much more than just two categories of like, has it or don't have it, or you know what I mean? Sure. Like it's, it's just way messier than that. And if that's true, if one in five um, are seriously struggling, then at the very least as Christ followers, I think we have a responsibility to just be mindful that everyone is fighting a battle that we know nothing about and right. may not ever know about. And, you know, especially in a time where everyone's kind of on edge. I think this is just a good reminder for me, at least, to to be proactive and preemptive in uh, in being people of love. Now, coming up next, Joe Agnello is going to join us. He's going to talk about not only his very interesting conversion story, but a little bit about his perspective regarding Christians in the marketplace. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you would not mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, tweeting, all of that somehow helps us out a whole bunch and uh, major props for everybody who has already done that. And we are thrilled to have on the show, Joe Agnello. Welcome to the show, sir. Hi, how are you? Thanks for Thanks. having me. It's our pleasure. Would you take a minute or two and introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. And um, secondly, I live in the northwest suburbs with my family. Thirdly, I'm an attorney in Schaumburg. And, and Joe, we're thrilled to have you on. And, and we wanted to hear just a little bit of your testimony. I know it, you came to Christ and it even plays a little bit into WILL, the radio station that we are on here. So can you just share uh, how you how it is that you came to uh, follow Jesus? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. It's my favorite topic, actually. So um, about 20 years ago, I was in law school and uh, my dad had come to Christ. I wasn't raised in I was raised in the church. I wasn't raised as a believer. Um, it was more tradition. And when my dad came to Christ, he started sharing the gospel with me while I was in law school. So I set out to prove him wrong. And as I did that, uh, one of the components that I stumbled across was WILL. And um, in that process, after listening to a particular group of pastors, one in particular, but a group of pastors, um, I had had an overwhelming sense of my depravity, which I had never understood before. Hmm. I never understood that I was a sinner. I always thought because I went to church, I was part of a church. I was in, it was a club and there was nothing else that I needed to do. And I was one of the lucky ones because I was raised in it. Well, I didn't understand that I was born a sinner. And when I came to that understanding, 
um, it was it was late at night. I was driving home, and I was listening to WYLL, and pulled over to the side of the road and gave my life to Christ. Wow! wow. And um, it was an incredible thing. And, and it's funny how you stumble on things, <laughs> either people, TV shows, radio shows, whatever it is. Uh, God orchestrates it for His good, and ultimately for our good. Mm. But um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. You know, that's been one of the remarkable things about even doing this show is we've gotten messages from people that are like, I don't even know how I found you guys. I think I accidentally (laughs) stumbled on your station, but man, you had someone on or you were discussing a topic or like that. That just never ceases to amaze me. The other other thing that you mentioned that you enjoy talking about is uh, Christians in the marketplace, which I I love that topic too, because, you know, Brian and I are both pastors and oftentimes people will say things like, oh, I feel like I need to quit my job and go into ministry. Mm. And I always want to be like, your yeah. job is your ministry. Like, not right. that sometimes people aren't called to do that, but I'd love to know why. Why are you passionate about Christians in the marketplace? The the role of maybe both a private and a public faith. Yeah. So um, we can't all be as public of our faith in our job, right? I'm self employed. Have all the freedom in the world to share the gospel with anybody. Nobody's going to fire me. I'm not at risk of losing anything. Mm. So it's real easy. Well, it's not always that easy, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. uh, God opens up the door. He opens up opportunities and I'm not going to get fired for it. So it's a little easier for me than some people. But I think that um, privately, we all have to make it known who we serve, uh, that we don't serve ourselves. We don't serve our job. We don't serve our idols. We may have them in our lives that we're, we're working on getting rid of. But ultimately, we serve Jesus Christ. We have to make that known. And that's how people attribute the good that they see in us to Jesus Christ. Without knowing that component, it's very difficult for Jesus to get the credit of our behavior. He may be working through us, changing us, uh, and and, um, affecting those around us in good ways. But the way that he gets attributed that is through people knowing who we serve. And I think Christians in the marketplace um, aren't given a, uh, and they don't have to not follow the Great Commission. We have to follow the Great Commission regardless of what we do. Just like what you said about I got saved and I'm passionate and I think I should quit quit my job and (laughs) become a pastor. Well, you are one. Mm -hmm. You're a pastor right where you are. And um, I thought that that's what God was going to do for me when I got saved. I was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. But I was in law school. God had a different plan in mind. And he He always uh, opened up different doors that sometimes I went uh, not willingly. He forced me in. And I see now at this point, twenty after being a believer for 20 years, I see where he forced me here and there. And I see the uh, the glory that he got from putting me in the right spot, at the right time, uh, and pressing upon me to open up my mouth at different times and share his truth. And uh, the more I did that, the more I saw his glory. Mm-hmm. And I did it through being an attorney. I never would have had those opportunities as a pastor. Right. Yeah. I think one thing that stops people from sharing their faith in the marketplace or in their neighborhood or wherever else is just fear, right? Like, I don't know what to say. What what would you, how would you encourage people 
uh, who do feel that fear. It's just even hearing you talk about this makes them nervous and I could never do that. What would you say to the people who are just scared to do that? The easiest thing in the world is to share with people that you're a Christian and then just let God take care of it from there. Mm-hmm. You just got to get it out and get it out that you're a Christian, that you follow. Christian is Christ follower, right? Mm-hmm. Let them know that you follow Jesus Christ and then let them ask you questions. Let them uh, take it from there. Now, we, you know, if the opportunity came to actually full on share the gospel, well, that's that's wonderful. But even you know, getting over the fear to getting to that point, just let people know who you serve. Yeah, right. I'm curious because Brian and I are, are pastors, have been for a while. So please forgive the uh, naivete of this question. <laughs> what are some of the unique opportunities to share your faith when you're a lawyer? Well, um, with estate planning, people are contemplating death. Mm. That's an opportunity. With uh, I used to do a lot of criminal defense. And that was a powerful opportunity. In fact, I, I do a lot of prison ministry today through a ministry called Koinonia House National Ministry with uh, Manny Mill. And there are powerful opportunities when people are facing uh, difficult consequences. Mm. It causes them to look to their creator. Right. And uh, they may not know who he is, but they're looking for answers and they're looking for someone who does know who he is. Mm. Um but there's other opportunities. Sometimes in a real estate closing, uh, uh, things come up where I get to share my faith that I'm a Christian. And that opens up a whole new avenue of conversation. It never would have come up if I didn't say I'm a Christian. And uh, so there, there's a lot of opportunities. And people are kind of shocked when a lawyer starts talking about his faith. Mm-hmm. So that's another opportunity. And they would from a plumber, too, or yeah, from, right, uh, right. you know, you name it, a car salesman. Um, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Joe, we're really excited to have you on and thrilled. Thank you for sharing your story. If people want to check out your, your firm or maybe hear more from you on social media, where are all the places that people can connect with you? Sure. Well, my office number is 630-452-3847. Also, my website is agnellolaw.com. And that's A-G-N as in Nicholas, E-L-L-O, law.com. Our guest today has been Joe Agnello. Can't encourage you enough. Give him a call or visit agnellolaw.com. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, it's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and we are on the home stretch. Remember when we used to end with Interweb Insanity? Do you miss I that? Do. Uh, on occasion, but every now and then, uh, it feels right not to do it with all the uncertainty in the world. Like it just, <laughs> it felt like it got yeah. out of control a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we, we should still like post those online just for funsies, but it felt like committing a whole segment to it at times. I was like, I don't want to. The world's already crazy enough. We don't exactly. need more crazy, but maybe there's like a reverse psychology component. Like, man, if you tell us about the crazy that's happening elsewhere, maybe it will make my crazy not feel so crazy. I don't know. And where are the pastors now who listen, getting their getting their material for their uh, illustrations? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they're really struggling to find sermon <laughs> illustrations these days. There's not like the, the entire world is a sermon illustration right now, Brian. <laughs> All right, so we've uh, had her on the show a couple of times. We've referenced her a bunch. Mandy Smith, 
She's a pastor and author. She actually has a, a brilliant website called thewayistheway.org. Cannot recommend it enough. Check it out. Her blogs and her writings. She's got a book coming out, Pastors of Church in Cincinnati. Uh, really, really good. I think she, I just think she has, has just a wonderful perspective that uh, is needed right now. She posted this a few days ago. It says, the gospel is better than a liberal political agenda. Do you want to get us into it? She says, the gospel wants to mess with our worldview. But if we come to Scripture with a left-leaning worldview, we may see things that confirm our perspective. And so we'll say, Jesus was a liberal. And by the same token, if we come to Scripture with a right-leaning worldview, we may see things that can confirm our perspective and say, Jesus was a conservative. But liberal and conservative values are not in themselves the gospel. I can't speak for folks who lean right. They need to distinguish between a conservative agenda and the gospel in their own ways. She's parenthetically said, I'm encouraged, for example, to watch how Russell Moore, uh, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, is leading this conversation. So she goes on to say, speaking as I do from a perspective that leans left, let me share how the gospel is showing itself to be so much bigger than a liberal uh, agenda. So before getting into her details, uh, I, I appreciate, and, and I, I, I think you're going to agree with this, but I appreciate when people say, uh, when we try to put uh, the gospel into the box of liberal, conservative, left, right, Republican, Democrat, uh, I almost just said we do a disservice to the gospel. We do much more than that. <laughs> we kind of mm. tear away at its fabric a little bit. And so uh, I do appreciate when people like Mandy here like kind of go, hey, let's let's stop trying to take the gospel and put it into our political boxes. So what do you think is the uh, solution then? I mean, it, it feels like we put things in boxes mm -hmm. to help us make sense of the world, to help us organize our thoughts to, I think a lot of times that metaphor, I think people put things in boxes for purer motives than we often think, if I could put it that way. Um, and I think that again, right or left traditional progressive, I do feel like the vast majority of people are are trying to really grapple honestly with what did Jesus mean by this? What does it mean mm -hmm. to pray God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Like, I think it is people grappling and often, you know, we will disagree uh, drastically, but like, what do you, what do you think is the way forward? I think it's what she does here. And, and I think it's, it requires some energy and some thought to say, okay, where am I? taking the gospel and just kind of putting it in a way that makes me feel comfortable or just uh, uh, affirms what I already believe about the world and not allowing myself to be stretched. Cause she's going to do that here, right? Let me, I'll jump back into it. She talks about the Beatitudes yep. uh, and that the Beatitudes are a classic example. And so she talks about how, when we preach the Beatitudes uh, we take, it takes the world's hierarchy and simply flips it. The marginalized mm -hmm. were the outsiders and now they're the heroes so she goes on to say, we often say, if you're marginalized, your freedom is dependent on the actions of others. And until every person you encounter treats you equitably, you'll always be oppressed. If you're in a place of privilege, you'll always be two steps away from blessed. Uh, you feel you have to give away all your possessions and comfort before you can ever feel connected to God. And she says, neither of these feel like freedom or good news. So she said, mm. but there is a better way. Some of these Beatitudes describe circumstances, she writes, beyond our control, but many of them are a chosen posture, hungering for righteousness, mercy, peacemaking, purity of heart. We each, regardless of our circumstances, have a choice. Mm -hmm. Those who are marginalized can find freedom now before uh, they've ever released from oppression when they find their hope in God. Those who are privileged can choose now to long for the things of God. And right now, even if they can never escape their privilege, they can be close to God. 
But in the world's eyes, there are still ways this can be warped. Uh, for the marginalized, it can sound like an opiate of the masses. For the privileged, it can sound like an easy way out. Here's the salt and light passage, which immediately follows the Beatitudes, promises something hopeful. Not only do we all have instant access, instant blessedness, if we choose the right posture to God, whatever we learn uh, in the closeness to God brings something radical uh, to the world around us. So anyway, uh, she's continuing to make the point that like uh, th that oftentimes the message of the gospel, the good news uh, of Jesus Christ kind of transcends even these things that we put it in, right? The, the way that we teach them or the way that we talk about them, the way that we categorize them. And it really does kind of take some work and some imagination, don't you think, to go, I have to, I have to kind of expand my mind to what makes this such good news to me and to others. It, it, we, we often just assume, oh, yeah, I know it's good news. But, but she, I think, is encouraging us to like really kind of dig deep into it. What makes it good news better than the ways that we normally kind of think of off the top of our head? Well, I was talking with a buddy of mine uh, yesterday, the day before, when we were talking about preaching. And he, he was just sort of riffing. He didn't have this prepared. But he said, I, I think the role of the preacher, which is different than teaching, he felt really convicted by that word, is to to help stir the imagination about what it means to live in the kingdom and to invite people to step into it. And I thought that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good definition because she goes on to do exactly that to kind of paint an imaginative picture, which she does so well. It says, when you're a child of the kingdom, you'll begin to be something that will mess with everything the world has ever known. Not only will you see yourself in new ways, you'll open the eyes of others. You'll be a poor person who is generous, a wealthy person who doesn't care about money. You'll be a sick person who has joy, a healthy person who is willing to step into danger. You'll be an outcast person who is not lonely, a popular person who has no regard for approval. You'll be a weak person who is strong, a strong person who chooses weakness. Your presence will give others a foretaste of God, a vision of God. I just want to like print that out and paint it, put it on my wall because I feel like, especially now, it's so easy. You know, I just preached the Beatitudes a couple of weeks ago. And it's kind of been messing with me ever since. That's probably why I was I was drawn to this article. The Beatitudes, as I said in the message too, is not a list of to-dos, like now and go and do these things. It's Jesus saying, you know, the divine benediction rests on these types of people. And I thought, gosh, how counter that is to like our always strategizing, highly utilitarian culture. Like what's the yeah. nugget? How do, what's the application? How do, what's the right. takeaway? And those things aren't bad, but like what she, and it's a much longer article that I encourage you to read, but it's, I just think she really beautifully does what my friend was saying last night, kind of painting a picture of what it means to live in the kingdom. Yeah, this line, when we let ourselves be transformed by the way of Jesus, our old ways of seeing suddenly seem two-dimensional. Uh, mm. When we're willing to receive the freedom he offers, now, regardless of our external circumstances, it becomes truly good news to us. And when we embrace that good news, we can be good news to others. We can describe a bigger, better story. Uh, and she ends by saying, not only does that sound like good news to me, it sounds like something worth sharing. And I, mm. this is good, man. I, I uh, one, one of the reasons I like doing the show, I, it's a blog post I never would have come across. But as you read it, you're like, okay, that's good. That's really good. It causes me to ponder uh, just how good this good news is and, and how I miss that. I, I think this is really helpful. I'd encourage people to give it a read at our Facebook page. And our Facebook page, if you're just joining us, is the Common Good Radio Show. That's where everything's posted. We do welcome and encourage any feedback, any comments, any private messages, and uh, we would love for this show to continue to be something that, that serves you all as a place for dialogue and discussion, and we really mean it when we say we're so grateful for every like, every post, every share, every subscription review. Mm -hmm. All that helps us out a whole bunch, and uh, we are super grateful for all of you. And with that said, Brian, Monday's in the books. 
It was a good day. We survived. We it made was. it. Live to tell another day. But fret not. We'll be uh, we'll be back again tomorrow from four to six p.m. for Brian Fromm. My name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. <laughs> 